Hello, and welcome to Beak Between the Lines, the podcast that explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week is our penultimate episode of our Hunger Games read-through because we are on Mockingjay Chapter 26. Wow. Yes, we are almost done with this book, and so much happens. This is an extra long episode, so we hope you enjoy even more conversations than usual. So, Chris, do you want to give us a recap? Sure. Katniss returns to her room to think through Snow's accusation that it was District 13 who dropped the children-killing bombs. She doesn't want to believe that Coin would kill Prim, especially using Gale's bomb idea, but she can't entirely convince herself it isn't true, so she seeks out Hamish. He has been drinking heavily, and greets her with an insensitive comment about boy trouble, which hurts Katniss, so she hides in a closet of silks and dreams of metamorphosing into a butterfly. She's taken back to her room the next morning, where she reunites with her prep team and Effie, who are there to help her prepare for Snow's execution. Gale visits, gives Katniss the arrow for Snow's execution, and then they discuss the bomb that killed Prim. Though Gale doesn't know if it was his bomb, they both know that Katniss will always connect him to it, so he leaves. Katniss is then brought to a meeting with the other six surviving victors. Coin asks them to settle a debate about how to exact justice on the Capitol, and to vote on her proposal to host a final Hunger Games using Capitol children. Boo! Peta, Annie, and Beatty vote no, and Obaria Johanna vote yes. Katniss thinks through her choice, reflecting on how things haven't changed since the Hunger Games were started, and votes yes. Hamish studies her, and then votes in favor along with the Mockingjay, and then they move outside for the execution. Katniss looks at Snow, who's amused even as he is tied to a post and coughing up blood. She thinks about how they agreed not to lie to each other, and then fires, killing Coin rather than Snow. <gasps> Which, yeah, I mean, that is a <gasps> moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is the climax in many ways of the story. Yeah. Oof. Well, <laughs> let's get into it. What are your striking moments? Yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about narrative choices and the dialogue choices in this chapter. Mm. For example, as Katniss is debating the ideas of who may have dropped the bombs, I think it's really interesting to kind of really be with entirely within her thought process. When she's weighing whether it could be the capital, she starts looking at evidence this shows that it would be the capital. This shows that it would be the capital. But then when she goes to the other side and she starts talking about District 13 doing it, she's raising questions. But why would they do this? But how, why would they do that? Mm. So it's already showing her desire to believe that it was the capital and not District 13. Mm-hmm. That she is going through and she's not really weighing them entirely objectively. She still is using her logic and she still is able to discern the truth ultimately. But I think it's really powerful to see her not just a kind of impartial judgment of who was at fault, but instead, even the way she thinks about it is highlighting her own desires, her own perspective, her hopes. And yeah, the fact that she, she, desperately doesn't want it to have been the capital. Yeah. Understandably. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another piece of dialogue that that really stood out to me was our very small scene that we had with Effie coming back. Because Effie's dialogue doesn't have any exclamation points. Mm. She says it's another big, big day. 
and then it's just a, a comma or a period showing mm. that that's the end of the sentence. And this is just like such a small detail, but it becomes so illustrative of where Effie is at and how much she's changed based off of the character that we knew so well in the first two books. Mm -hmm. Because she was always so exuberant, always had so much energy. So much so, you know, she was putting energy into things that she shouldn't be, but she always was kind of, if anything, overly dramatic, overly enthused <laughs> about things. And so for her to... She's described as having vacant eyes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's clear that she has suffered a lot and that she is haunted by what she's experienced and that it's changed her. And it's not even like the inclusion of something, but just the leaving out of something that was so central to her character in exclaiming things, I thought was really illustrative because mm -hmm. even before this read-through, I've always seen her as, in this last scene, very different and very affected. Mm -hmm. And so doing this kind of slower read, I think, is when I was like, oh... It's, it's the lack of the exclamation points. It's like this this grammatical change that, yeah, can, can show character growth. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And obviously the prep team has changed too because of what they experienced in District 13, their captivity and torture. But yeah, I think even with that, the prep team still cringes or looks shocked at... Katniss's appearance, whereas Effie, it doesn't mention that at all. Mm -hmm. uh, she just greets Katniss and doesn't show any of, of that on her face, which I think, yeah, is also a big change for Effie because, you know, before, <laughs> one of her most insensitive, terrible comments about the tributes the year before Katniss and Peeta mm -hmm. being savages and eating with their hands and stuff, you know, very much showing her distaste yeah. and not really managing those um, reactions of herself, like when... Katniss, in anger in response to that, wipes her hands on the tablecloth. You know, Effie showed on her face her reactions to that, but in this instance, um, she doesn't. And I don't know if that's just because she's seen much more and she's become desensitized to it a bit. If it's that through this process she cares about some of these things less mm -hmm. uh, and can now view Katniss as an actual person rather than just an object to be quote-unquote perfected mm. for success so yeah I'm not sure but yeah it's very interesting for Effie mm -hmm. yeah I was also interested in the scene with Haymitch yeah in part because it's so clear that Haymitch is back drinking copious amounts of alcohol Mm -hmm. And so it highlights that District 13's rationing and teetotaling and, and you know, they're making him not drink alcohol mm -hmm. when he was living there is not the case in the capital. He raided uh, Snow's personal stash. Yeah, but there's also probably just a new kind of black market being set up for this new set of elites and I'm sure Plutarch is in the middle of it, you know, <laughs> of these people, especially who had been in District 13 back in the capital, who now have access to the vices that they became comfortable with 
and are taking control of those now that the capital's traditional elites have been dethroned. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, yeah, I think that one of the great things about this world and how complexly it's written is that these small character moments that Hamish is still drinking and Hamish is still coping through alcohol also are able to illustrate changes in the world beyond them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also great writing because earlier in the book, we had mentioned how when Hamish was trying to protect Finnick from being exploited as a diversion tactic, you know, with Plutarch suggesting that he share about his sexual exploitation. You know, that that was him at his best, mm-hmm. right? When he's thinking about other people, when he is fighting for other people instead of just coping in toxic ways, you know? Yeah. But it's not just linear, you know? It's not just like, oh, you keep getting better and better and better, and then you're, you stay that way. Like, mm-hmm. that's not how things like this work you know he he goes back and forth between his toxic ways and trying to help other people that he cares about or trying to help you know the whole of penem yeah but yeah he constantly devolves back you know and and yeah i think that's just very realistic mm-hmm. and you know we know that he's he can be very cruel particularly when he's intoxicated. You know, it's just... It's such an insulting thing. <laughs> like, how yeah. can you... Like, she's... Kedis is trying to find answers about a tyrannical government and answers about the murder of her sister. And then he makes fun of her for boy trouble. Like, it's just so insensitive and insulting yeah to to Katniss this assumption uh that I don't even know if he was assuming that but like you know just trying to be cruel yeah that's his go-to but other people do assume Mm -hmm. that about her that they're always making more of her boy issues than Katniss ever has which again is mirrored in our society, where mm-hmm. people consider this the story about her in a love triangle, mm-hmm. and that is adjacent to the main story of her as a resistance fighter. Yeah, totally, and not even just in how people view this series, but in almost everything. Mm-hmm. It's like they always have to add some romantic thing in, even when it's like people are in the middle of a war, you know, whatever yeah. is happening. And it's just kind of unnecessary, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, all the time you see these action movies and these things, it's like, let's insert a romance just because, even when it completely doesn't make any sense, even when it's like, oh, this is all taking place in like three days, but somehow this romance has started and it's just like, when people really be thinking about this or just trying to stay alive, you know? And so, yeah, I think she's always been trying to deal with death and revolution and war and trauma and people are always putting these boy things on her. Yeah. But I think also, too, 
Uh, this was one of my striking moments, yeah. But reading this section was bringing me back to Catching Fire. Mm. When she confided in him about Bonnie and Twill and possibly District 13 still existing, he lied and gaslighted her mm-hmm. and then sent her into the games without crucial information. And that being the reason that he's the last person in the list of people she goes through that she thinks of. Because her first thought is that everyone she trusts is dead. Cinna, mm-hmm. Boggs, Finnick, Prim. And then she goes to Pete and Gale, but those are more difficult for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And the last person she thinks of is Hamish. And I think the reason the last person she thinks of is because of what he did in Catching Fire. Mm-hmm. Because she did automatically go to him first with that information, and then this is what happened. And she was betrayed, and she was lied to. And so she has to go through the process of thinking, he would gamble with my life in the games, but he would never turn me into coin. It shows her lack of trust in him, which is completely reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just kind of proves her... Right in in his response to her, not not in line to her in this case, but in not being the support, not being the friend, not being a decent human being. Exactly. Um, in response, when she says, "I need your help," which I can't remember a time that she ever said that to anyone in these books. Mm. Like it's a big deal for. Katniss to say I need your help yeah that's interesting she's used to helping everyone else and his automatic response is oh more boy troubles and it was a vulnerable thing for her to ask him even after their whole history and he screwed up I mean thankfully he realized automatically he tried to correct it but like he yeah he did this. Yeah. And I can understand why she breaks down, especially after your points, because she only has the one person she can talk to mm-hmm. who already is someone who she doesn't have a lot of faith. And so him proving that he's not reliable as yeah. a support for her is then more evidence that she doesn't have anyone mm-hmm. and that her world's been destroyed. And yeah, I can understand why that would be so so awful for her yeah it's it's a really i think realistic moment but it's a really tragic moment totally well my last striking moment was just when she entered the room with the other victors noticing lime's absence yeah i know and noticing you know i i never noticed that in previous readings because i wasn't reading as carefully but after our conversations about lime and like mm-hmm. having her in mind her absence here implies that she's died in the intervening time mm-hmm. and that's sad because she was a character who i found very interesting absolutely um yeah what that means for her experiences in district two or in the mm-hmm. capital Yeah, it's just more unanswered questions about a character that herself represents, I'm sure, other characters who might have been part of the rebellion or not, who Mm -hmm. were victors who are not there anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so sad, right? That seven of them is all that's left. Yeah. Like, victors have already been through so much. 
And yeah, now all of them are dead except Seven because the people around them turned on them. Mm-hmm. When, I mean, obviously it's the whole the whole system is terrible, but like they did bring their community food yeah. and gifts for a whole year. And for the community to, you know, just not be able to trust them and then on either side, depending on the situation, turn on them and kill them. Yeah, they're um, either too capital or too district. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure some of them, it wasn't people necessarily singling them out, but it, it could have been situations where they were fighting with their community and peacekeepers right. killed them earlier in the war. But someone like Lime... We saw them take District 2 for the most part. And Lime was in command there. So mm. was that... Yeah, it just... It, it raises a lot of questions about how that could have occurred that this book doesn't go into because even though those are interesting questions, mm-hmm. there's so much more that Katniss is focused on yeah. in this moment, understandably. Absolutely. But what about you? What other striking moments did you have? I had too many things, but... <laughs> what? You? All right, let me get comfortable. Do you need to get a snack, a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah, let me go pop some popcorn. <laughs> That'll be great audio. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, something small, but also huge in terms of Katniss's character is that even with everything she's dealing with right now, she still has compassion for her prep team, Mm. thinking, I remember I'm not the only one whose world has been stripped away. Mm. And I'm just like, Katniss, you're (laughs) such an empathetic person that, yeah, with everything she's tormented with, She's grieving. She's dealing with just in terms of physical pain and healing. She still sees her prep team kind of hunched over, sitting in the bathroom after her conversation with Gail. And, yeah, has compassion. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I think one of the best things about her character. Totally. Also... Another great moment is just PETA being PETA again. I mean, of course. <laughs> Making an impromptu speech about the atrocities that Hamish could be party to if he votes yes. And just like, PETA, yes. Exactly. He's the first person to speak out against the new games. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like constantly speaking throughout, which is exactly how I would be. I'd be like, no, I am going to force you to understand every single aspect of this before you make your choice because it's the wrong choice to vote yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just PETA being PETA. And again, a PETA who has been tortured and Mm -hmm. maimed and all these other kinds of things, who has in no way recovered, Mm -hmm. who has in no way completed that you know, a journey. Yeah. Like, he's still in it just as much as Katniss is. And... And will be for the rest of his life. Exactly. hmm And he still comes in with this perspective. And it's just why I love PETA. I know. 
Another thing that I was noticing is just that Katniss is made up by the prep team before killing Snow. And it was just kind of making me think about the victory tour mm. in a way that it's like in the aftermath of the violence and devastation of the games, as well as in the aftermath of the violence and the devastation of the war, things are still a production. Mm. And the idea that victory through violence is still being celebrated. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, celebrated and filmed, and you would hope that in this new world order or whatever, that they wouldn't, at the very least, feel the the need to change someone's appearance to to go on stage to execute someone, but that's not the case. So, yeah. Yeah. Also... Just the symbolism of making all the victors wear District 13's gray uniforms. Oh, I didn't pick up on that, but you're absolutely right. Right. Of course. Right? They're still being used as pawns. Yeah. They are still pieces in these games because Coin is also going to have them take the fall for the decision to do the games because she said it's going to be known that not not the breakdown of your votes but that you you voted on this and it's it's to take her culpability out and Absolutely. it's it's putting it on the victors and yeah they're they're still being used they're still being forced to wear these outfits and Aguario was never even in district 13 right. and it's just like so ridiculous especially for people who have been so used and so controlled by the capital for all of these years and generations and now it's happening again in a different way yeah and that's so fascinating too because they're included in this production because of their special status but their dressing as district 13 soldiers shows that they're also meant to be signifying the lack of social status in society, Mm -hmm. that everyone is not only equal, but owes their fealty to Mm -hmm. the community as defined by District 13. Yeah. Yeah. All of these people are under the command of coin. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is kind of what they tried to do with Katniss earlier, right? Mm -hmm. With the the world propose uh, when they were actually in the battlefield. Ugh. Coin, 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 coin. But speaking of names in triplicate, Gale, Gale, Gale. (laughs) The fact that he says that taking care of Katniss's family was the, quote, one thing he had going for him. Yes. Is just, ah, Gale, what are you doing? What are you saying? Like... This isn't about a romantic relationship. This is about her dead sister. Mm-hmm. This is about moral philosophy and violence. <laughs> this is about right and wrong and pain and death and friendship and trust and accountability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not about your romantic relationship. This is not about what you have going for you. 
this sh- this should be about support and apologizing and mm-hmm. reckoning with changing your own perspectives after you realize that you've been party to such a brutal event and and something that not just killed oh the girl you like sister but like killed somebody that you were friends with too like he knew prim yeah and just making it about this romantic thing is just what are ah, Gail get out of your butt like it's just <laughs> I don't it's just so frustrating absolutely I actually had this set down as a touch point oh okay because I see this as Gail being like the quintessential nice guy TM you know <laughs> the person who like yeah sees being nice and taking care of people as a character value that will make them attractive mm. or you know that helps to entitle them to attention yeah um and that that niceness then is in some way at least performative and yeah. he's showing that here that it he cares more about the fact that he's losing her love than what she's losing possibly due to his actions yeah, yeah. like you mentioned he doesn't apologize here yeah you know, he doesn't cry with her over the loss of her sister. Exactly. Like, this is what best friends would do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, like, I, especially, like, in high school, had some nice guy TM tendencies, <laughs> for sure, where, yeah, I would also be, like, seeing myself as, as being a good guy, as being nice, as being compassionate, was something that made me different from most guys, which, you know, is problematic in and of itself <laughs> for many reasons. But if I was ever in a situation like this or a situation where someone was revealing that they didn't have feelings for me, but they were also suffering, my first response, because this is someone I cared about, would be to empathize with that person, yeah. to be there for that person. Um, and never to, yeah, be so clouded in whatever despair of, oh no, now they'll never like me. (laughs) It's just, it's so selfish and immature. And it makes me think, okay, Gail is a teenager. Gail, (laughs) you know, is still a child. Uh, Well, technically not, but, you know. Yeah, he's still, he's still, he actually is immature. Yeah, yeah. But, um, still, it's just... Yeah, I'd, I'd want so much more from Gail here. Than... Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if it's that this is really the most core feeling he has about the situation. Like, maybe it's shame. Mm-hmm. And so this is what he can say because maybe it's easier. It's easier to think like, oh, well... I've lost you, like, I've lost this romantic relationship, then I've ruined our friendship. Mm. Or maybe not I've ruined our friendship, but, like, can we work through this? Can we still be friends? Because he didn't even visit her in the hospital when she was recovering from all of her burns and had skin grafts and everything, and then obviously the aftermath of her sister's death. And I just see that as cowardice. He didn't want to face her. Hmm. Um, maybe it was he didn't want to find out that, yeah, maybe we'll never be able to really have a relationship. Because <laughs> I would like 
to believe that he feels more than just this. Yeah. I don't know if that's true, though, because this is all that he expresses. Mm -hmm. So anything else is speculation. But, yeah, I would like to think that she and her family means more to him than just if we can't be in a romantic relationship, then I don't care. You know, like... I would like to believe that he has remorse for his actions that have nothing to do with Katniss. Yeah. That has to do with these people who were murdered through it. Mm-hmm. One of whom, you know, he was close with. I don't, I don't know if emotionally close, but in each other's daily lives, yeah. you know. Um, further grief that Katniss's mom is experiencing, you know, when his whole family is intact besides his dad that died many mm-hmm. years before. And so, yeah, I, I would like to believe that he feels more than just this, but at the very least, this is all that he says. And yeah, it's just a really bad friend. Yeah. Come on, Gail, be better. Where's the compassion you showed for Peta? Yeah, this was a fail. Mm-hmm. Gale. Hashtag Gale fail. Gale fail. Yeah, absolutely. Found this episode's hashtag. <laughs> I mean, there is maybe a more important fail, and that would be coin and her choices. But, well, I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> so why don't we move into our next section, which is from another point of view, which is where we think about a perspective other than Katniss's. So who do you have? I have coin. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> yep. Let's get into it. Uh, so I think I've said on the podcast in the past how my first read through of the Hunger Games, I didn't understand what Katniss was doing in this chapter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the reason for that is because I didn't do what Katniss is doing in this chapter, which is thinking through coin's perspective. And thinking through all of the steps that it took for Coin to get to where she is. And then making the choice to kill Coin in response to that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I kind of put it upon myself to really think through Coin's like, journey to get to this point And then what she was feeling during that meeting and afterwards. Mm-hmm. Because Coin coming up with this plan... I see as, you know, she probably did see this as the most logical way to move forward. Yeah. As a, you know, solution to stave off genocide or calls for genocide Mm -hmm. that also wouldn't lead to a massive depopulation Mm -hmm. uh, or further war. And so I think that she could see this as a kind of balancing act, but... I don't see Coin thinking through in her mind or paying much attention to the cruelty of this kind of act. I think that for Coin, the closest that she would come to that is thinking through how it would reflect on her, yeah. how the perception of this act would be, which is then why she comes up with this additional solution, which you mentioned, which is to pass it off as the victor's choice, yeah. not her own. And that it's the victor's decision to go forward with this. 
uh, ultimately, yeah, putting it on them. And so there, Coin gets to have this event take place that she, again, thinks is the, the logical choice, but understanding its cruelty just makes her shift the perception of it, not actually taking that cruelty seriously as rationale not to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that kind of like very calculating cold logic, I think is uh, a really illustrative way of, of how Katniss is probably thinking Coin is at this point mm-hmm. and why she doesn't think that she's going to be a good leader because <laughs> she's seen her cruelty. She's seen how she's willing to kill Katniss. She's willing now to kill these children. And I think... It really <laughs> shows Katniss that, yeah, Coin would have dropped those bombs. Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah, you're right. And she probably did mm-hmm. because it was a calculated thing to do. It would decrease casualties before surrender and things like that. And so it was just what Coin sees as the smartest, most efficient solution, just like these Hunger Games are. Mm-hmm. And... I think it's really important that these decisions that Quinn is making are coming from a place of being removed from the situation. Mm. District 13 never had to experience the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. They could watch them, I guess, probably at some point, but they never had to experience the stress and fear of someone you love going in yeah, and having to watch them die and then having to experience the victory tours and having the child that killed your child stand there in beautiful clothes and Mm. making some speech, you know? And also during this war up until this, that, closer to the end they didn't really have to experience the brunt of the violence either Mm. and so both the decision to use the bombs and the decision to take this vote for another hunger games yeah are just coming from a place of not having a stake in the emotions and the trauma that has gone on and just thinking that you can find a solution when you don't really know anything about the situation. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it just makes me think about how America thinks that it has, can be, <laughs> you know, the... World police. World police and, and can help negotiate peace treaties and all these other kinds Let's of things. bring democracy. Exactly. We don't have one here, but we can bring it to you. Uh, and how the U.S. will always try to get outcomes that are best for america not oh, for absolutely. you know it's it's main point is not to be empathetic yeah. we never go in to actually help the people of a different country we only ever go in if it benefits us in some way because there have been so many wars and genocides and different things going on in countries that we never set foot on because they don't have oil or they don't have to, you know. So, yeah, the the decisions are entirely politically and economically motivated, not compassion motivated. Absolutely. So then I was thinking about what Coin might be experiencing in that meeting. I could imagine Coin, for example, being surprised at Beatty's vote against. Mm 
because perhaps she thought that he would agree that this is the logical solution to have the fewest deaths possible, Mm -hmm. um, since his focus is also on population control. Yeah. But then I can imagine her being really happy to see Katniss and Hamish's vote. And perhaps even with Katniss's vote, seeing this as a kind of confirmation that she made the right choice in killing Prim. Mm. Katniss Mm -hmm. mentioned in this chapter that maybe Coin did this to break her. Yeah. To make it so that Katniss was no longer a threat to Coin. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the case, I can imagine (laughs) Coin seeing I was just like, jokes on you, but I guess that's not very nice and she's murdered yes but yeah i I can see her seeing katniss then voting to approve these games as a confirmation that she was right to Mm. do what she did Mm -hmm. and that it did lead to the outcomes that she wanted well and i think the reason that katniss votes the way she does is because she thinks that Coin will view her vote as a confirmation that she's on Coin's side mm-hmm. or that she's too vindictive, she's too caught up in her experiences to pose any sort of political threat. Absolutely. Which is effective right because Katniss wants she needs to gain her trust that coin doesn't arrange an accident happened to mm-hmm. Katniss or so that she would be able to have a situation where she could kill her or you know oust her from power yeah and I think that it it succeeds at that it does mm-hmm. earn at least some of her trust then because her next action is that she smiles at Katniss and tells her that Coin will let Snow know uh, that the games are coming when she puts the rose on his lapel. Mm-hmm. So she reveals how she thinks that Snow should not only be killed, but should have knowledge that will be torturous to him mm-hmm. or distressing to him and expects Katniss to feel the same way. Yeah. And... That ultimately is the difference, but I mean, there's many differences between Coin and Katniss, <laughs> but that is the difference between their hatred of Snow, mm-hmm. is that Katniss always wanted to kill Snow because of all the things that he did and all the things that he could do mm-hmm. to the people that she loves. But Katniss wouldn't have wanted to torture Snow. Yeah. Coin is absolutely fine utilizing that cruelty against who she sees as an enemy. That's just not Katniss. Katniss is not a cruel person in the same way. So yeah, I can see Coin leaving that meeting feeling like she has won, like she's accomplished what she needs to, Mm -hmm. like she has Katniss in her camp, and that she's going to be able to gloat about her victory to Snow Mm -hmm. uh, right before he gets assassinated. Yeah. I do kind of wonder, though, if she has going through her mind what she's going to do about PETA. Mm. Because if PETA is this strongly speaking out against this vote, this plan, 
he is going to be opposing her, right? Yeah. And up until these games happen, he will be opposing it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) probably publicly. Yeah. And that's going to be a problem for her. That's a really good point. So, yeah, I kind of wonder if she even has her wheels turning to a plot to figure out a way to, you know, maybe trigger some of his hijacking symptoms and so that he can have to be sedated indefinitely or imprisoned or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point. But no... Because Katniss killed her. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, again, I think is, is in the ending of this book, you know, Katniss's most important action. Mm-hmm. Her mission into the Capitol was ultimately a failure. This chapter is when she makes a choice that changes Pan Am. Mm-hmm. And I think... It shows that while her choice to continue into the capital to try to assassinate Snow was based on vengeance, mm-hmm. she has let that go mm. in favor of not having another dictator. I mean, I guess we could argue that if she now believes that Coin did drop those bombs, it could be motivated. I mean, she does say for Prim. Totally. But I, I I really do think it's more than that. I mean, that it could be a factor, but it's it was the sentence that was, after everything that's happened, nothing's changed. Exactly. Yeah, she, she chooses, instead of taking out the vengeance for what Snow has done to her, her family, everyone alive in Penem, she kills the person who now has the power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, as a pacifist, it's it's still a sad choice, <laughs> but it shows, I think, growth on her part to, to not just take the vengeance on Snow. How she personally feels about Snow is not as important as everyone in Penem. Mm, yeah. Well, what about you? What point of view did you want to talk about today? So there were two I was thinking about. One is Katniss's mom. Mm. Because... A character we still don't know the name of. I know. Which I kind of, like, is sad because, you know, you always want to know the name of characters, especially female characters. But I also love because it's from Katniss's first-person point of view. And you don't really call your parents generally by their first name unless you're a part of some white family you know (laughs) (laughs) so I was thinking of her grieving the death of Prim as Katniss had had thought in I think the previous chapter that she was trying to bury her grief in her work Mm -hmm. so she's caring for those who are injured, those who are suffering. I think it it will be such a hard way to bury the grief mm. because she must feel Prim's loss at least every few minutes, at least every hour. Yeah. Because for several years, Prim was always by her side assisting with treatments and 
her absence must be felt really strongly, uh, even as she's concentrating on treating wounds because she's probably used to being like, oh, Prim, can you hand me this? Or can you, you know, and Prim's not there. And yeah, not to mention what's it going to be like when she has burn victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, taking her back to District 12 and the pain and suffering she's seen there and what happened to her husband and her other daughter is a burn victim in front of her. You know, it's just... What well, took these firebombs? I'm sure that Prim's body was also quite burnt. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if she saw the remains... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's just... Must be so much. And I can't imagine that she wouldn't be regretting on some level letting prim train in district 13 mm. uh, at such a young age because she was only 13 years old not even quite 14 you know and it it made sense to let her train but then this happened and it's it's not her fault it's not the fault of prim, you know but like i'm sure it would still feel like like those regrets would still come to the surface yeah absolutely also, I was thinking about how much anger she must have because I also can't really imagine her giving parental consent to let Prim go into the battlefield. Like, would she really have done that? Yeah. I kind of doubt it. And why wasn't Prim just working with her wherever she was treating injured rebels? Yeah, I, I could imagine her just being really angry at the, the decisions that were made, even if she doesn't think that the bombs were from District 13 or that Coin had it out for her family or whatnot, but just that her daughter is dead because of decisions that she didn't make, mm -hmm. you know, because of decisions someone high up made allowing a 13-year-old to go into a battlefield. And then at the same time, trying to deal with all of that, also seeing her other daughter so badly burned and suffering and unspeaking. And she must just feel so far away from Cadmus because, yeah, Cadmus isn't even talking to her, communicating with her about any of her feelings about what's happened um we can't even talk about anything else that isn't even about what happened uh and obviously she's been a bit emotionally distant from Katniss this whole her whole life but I can imagine just like knowing that there's nothing that she can do to lessen Katniss's pain and trauma mm. just making her feel really helpless and so then maybe yeah putting effort into her work is helpful in that regard because these are people that she can help um and i was also thinking about if she was in the audience when snow is supposed to be assassinated you know like if she was there watching her 17 year old daughter walk out on stage to carry out the execution of a dictator mm -hmm. 
if she is, like, how would she feel about that? Because it is still your 17-year-old daughter that you're going to watch kill someone, which <laughs> I imagine would be really difficult and horrifying yeah. <laughs> in certain ways and saddening and concerning and all of these things. But, you know, would there be a part of her that is... I don't know, almost almost proud or almost happy about it because she's so angry at Snow and what he's done to all of Panem and what she, he's done to her family, like taking everyone away from her, you know, her husband, Prim, and one of her other daughters in a way too, through the starvation, through the death of the father through these games through this war or yeah would she just be concerned for her daughter and sad hmm. that she's in this place and is expected or asked to do these things or wants to do these things hmm. yeah that's really interesting it also makes me think about just what it's like for her being in the capital mm-hmm you know, she obviously District 12 isn't there anymore. So she doesn't probably doesn't see that as a place that she can go. But similarly, District 13 isn't really a home. Mm -hmm. And now she's in the Capitol, which is where Snow and the Capitol, who has taken it so much from her, are from. Mm -hmm. And she's in nearby where her daughter was killed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just... Being in a physical location like that, I can imagine being itself really off-putting. And um, for someone who's already shown that depression can be disabling, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just must she must be going through quite a bit. Absolutely, yeah. It must be very, like, isolating. Yeah. The other person I was thinking about is Annie. Hmm. As she's sitting there at the table for this vote it's entertaining the thought that there could be another hunger games with the children of some of the people that sexually exploited the person she loved the most yeah. in the world which is i could imagine could be a tempting thought mm -hmm. right that these people need to suffer for what they've done and this is a way for them to suffer. You know, you abused him as a child. Well, now your child is going to die in front of you, you know? Obviously, it's a very unkind, uncompassionate thought, but an understandable one, uh, considering everything that's happened. But she says no to that, to that revenge. Yeah. And she's not going to use any of the same methods of the oppression that oppressed her to oppress others, which is just a really, you know, we don't know Annie that much, but like she says, <laughs> Manick would have voted this way too. Like both of them, even despite everything that they've been through, would have voted. No, we're not going to do this to anyone else. Because, and maybe it's 
part of it is because we did not deserve this mm. as children and these yeah. children don't deserve it either. And even when she says that Finnick, if he was able to vote, would have voted no, like how it must be so painful to even say that yeah. and how she is <laughs> probably been for the past few weeks just trying to hold it together because she already had trouble with her own PTSD and Finnick would help with that in some ways. Now he's not there and it's not that he's just not there, but it's that he's dead. Yeah. And then Joanna <laughs> insensitively saying, yeah, but he isn't here because Snow's Mutts killed him. It's, it just, it must have been such a difficult moment for Annie. Yeah. Hearing that after she's trying to hold it together and does not break down sobbing because this amazing person who she loved and loved her, you know, is gone, then it's just how he died and why he died and everything is just kind of thrown in your face uh, as you're trying to make a more compassionate decision would just, I imagine, be really difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, but that that's such a illuminating perspective, though, because we spend so much time here in Katniss's perspective dealing with the loss of the most important person to her. Mm-hmm. And Annie's dealing with the exact same thing. Yeah. And so this is a huge decision for her as well. Yeah. And for her to invoke Finnick's name as not only why she's voting, but I think as a way to try to convince others to vote that way too, to press mm-hmm. upon them how Phoenix's sacrifice is meaningful. Yeah. And the meaning that she's making from that is not to continue a cycle of violence, to seek vengeance, but instead, like you said, to do better, mm-hmm. to be better. And uh, that, I think, is, yeah, a really amazing stance to take uh, for someone who must be really, really hurting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also kind of love how Peta turned to Annie to ask her what her vote was going to be. And then she says, I vote no with Peta. Mm. It was kind of making me wonder, like, yeah, maybe they did become friends-ish while they were in prison together. Yeah. And maybe even though she's not speaking out in the same ways that Peta is in, the, in this meeting, and maybe she isn't have the confidence to do that maybe she's not comfortable with it maybe she just can't because she's trying so hard to hold it together but i was also imagining her feeling like some amount of relief at just Peta taking it upon himself to argue against this uh if she felt that she couldn't and having that how both of them knew that they would be on the same page is just must be nice in a circumstance as uncomfortable and painful as this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Annie. Oh, Finnick. Uh, oh, everyone. <laughs> Except Galen Coyne. And <laughs> <laughs> never snow. <laughs> but why don't we go into our touch points? This is where we explore things happening in this chapter that we also see a parallel to in our own reality. So what do you have? Yeah, so I had a couple other ones beyond 
you know, Gale being awful. Uh, but one of them is actually kind of tied to that. And, and the fact that Gale and Beatty created this weapon that was ultimately used to kill medics and children, including Prim, mm-hmm. highlights how weapons development is inherently awful. <laughs> Especially... True, true facts. In the modern era, where we've got really, really, really good ways of killing people. Mm-hmm. And that we still build better ways. Yeah. Um, How do we kill more people? Yeah. And, you know, we've continued to devise more and more advanced ways to kill, but those advancements can't be entirely controlled. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. military has made <laughs> whenever, awful... Whenever there's the start of a sentence, you know it's going to end badly. Right. And this one might even surprise you because the U.S. military has made awful and inhumane decisions with the weapons that have been developed by the United States, right? The Mm -hmm. nuclear bombing of Japan is foremost among those, but we also have genocide against Native Americans. We have imperialist overthrows of governments. We've got all these other kinds of things that have been tied to American weaponry. Occupation of... Hawaii and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. exactly. And other places as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the military as a whole at least does have some oversight and accountability. There is some processes by which people can be held accountable, court-martialed, what have you. Do I have faith in those processes? Not no. necessarily. <laughs> but they do exist. Uh, and, you know, there are political ways that... Americans can get involved with those decisions, even though they won't. And that's basically on particular people's actions, but there's no accountability or oversight in terms of, like, finances and resource management. Right. I mean, there is through our representatives, but American culture is just, like, military? Yeah, it takes more money. No, but there there actually isn't, because up until this day, the military has never been successfully audited. So, like... There's still no official records that are accessible that say where all of the money is going and how it's being used. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I meant oversight in that at least Congress adopts the budget and like funnels the money. But yes, you're right. (laughs) Funnels the too much money. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But I think that this also shows how weapons are developed and then they leave the military operations Mm -hmm. and become dangerous in whole new ways. So now in the United States, for example, we all have to worry about people having military grade firearms they can use to shoot up anywhere they want to. Mm -hmm. People around the world have to worry about things like mines and missiles that haven't exploded that were from Wars over a hundred years ago, but are still dangerous Mm -hmm. to the people today. Everyone on the planet should worry about what would happen if a nuclear weapon falls into the hands of someone who would use that indiscriminately. You mean like our hands? (laughs) I mean, mean, we have done that, right? We have done that. It's unlikely we would do it again. Yeah. Well, it's possible but unlikely. Yeah. yeah. But I would say it's it's more likely for a non-state actor 
who gets a hold of a Russian nuclear bomb that got lost in the, you know, dissolution mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union to utilize that in a terrorist attack. Mm-hmm. And why is that a possibility? Because the U.S. and Soviet Union are both like, no, we need to be able to destroy the Earth more times than you yeah. and <laughs> built, you know, more and more nuclear weapons than could possibly be necessary. <laughs> right. It's like you don't need to win in the numbers of how many nuclear weapons you have. You just need enough that you could destroy the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I mean, you don't need that. But like from from the logical point of view, if we have five and that would be enough to completely take Russia off the map, then why would we need any more than that? It's not like, oh, but if we have five more than them, like that'll dissuade them. Like that's not what? Exactly. doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it's absurdity. Well, I'm like, oh, we made the atomic bomb and then it's like now let's make a hydrogen one that can do even more destruction because what was done to people in japan wasn't enough destruction like i just uh it's yeah it's disgusting yeah absolutely but a lot of that's about capitalism right and the companies that are making these things getting money for doing it even if they're not going to ever be used True. I mean, I think nuclear weapons have a slightly different history just because so much of their proliferation had to do with the Cold War. Sure. But yeah, it, it's just a uh, a really awful example of how even if you are fighting a war for what you see as altruistic reasons, the more you're able to effectively kill people, mm-hmm. that is not going to bring good into the world. No. Yeah, I think that that... This, this bomb that Gale and Beatty created is, is a prime example of that. Absolutely. My other touch point also had to do with awful things. Oh. Because um, I wanted to talk about war crimes. Mm-hmm. Because they talk about how they've had war crimes trials for everyone who's involved with the oppression of the districts. Mm-hmm. That made me start thinking about our own world's history with war crimes trials. Mm-hmm. And the... International Criminal Court, or the ICC. So the International Criminal Court wasn't actually established until 1998. Hmm, that's pretty recent. Yeah, and it was established by the United Nations General Assembly to investigate and prosecute war crimes, crimes that were committed either by governments or by non-state actors. So, like, terrorist organizations, militias, other groups that don't have an actual government but still have military forces, essentially, Mm -hmm. or weaponry. The thing is that uh, after the General Assembly approved of the creation of the ICC, there was a treaty that was created, and the ICC only has jurisdiction of the countries that have signed that treaty. (laughs) Guess what countries haven't signed that treaty? (laughs) The United States? The United States, Israel, China... Russia, and dozens of others. Mm -hmm. 123 countries have signed that treaty. So at least three of the Security Council. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Security Council is one way that investigations can begin. The Mm -hmm. Security Council can request them. Another way is if a country requests them itself, which has Mm -hmm. been the majority of the investigations that have proceeded. Most of those investigations have been in Africa, the vast majority of them, in fact, That is in large part because of the willingness of countries, especially as regime changes occur, 
to have those investigations occur. But investigations, say, in Palestine and Afghanistan, two countries which have invited the ICC in, have been extremely contentious. There have been no charges pressed. They're still in the investigation phase for both of them. But in both cases, the U.S. and Israel argue that the ICC does not have jurisdiction because they haven't signed the Rome Treaty. So even though Palestine and Afghanistan have, they mm-hmm. haven't, which they claim means that they are not accountable or that there's no jurisdiction. Yep. The U.S. has gone even further. Again, shocking. After the ICC was established, the U.S. under George W. Bush passed a law that's known informally as the Hague Invasion Act because uh, the ICC is located in the, the Hague and the act said that the U.S. would use all means necessary to free any American under investigation by the ICC. All means necessary to free them from persecution in the Hague would sound like an invasion mm-hmm. of the Hague. Under Trump... Oh, no. The U.S. laid sanctions on anyone who is investigating or providing evidence for ICC trials against the United States. Oh my god. What was that you were saying about the uh, U.S. military having accountability? (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. Uh, I said some accountability. Um, So the ICC has publicly indicted 50 people, but of those, only 30 have completed their proceedings, and of those 30... Only nine people have actually been sentenced. Seven of them have been released from their sentence because apparently you can be tried, prosecuted, and found guilty of war crimes and then just go free a few years later. Oh my god. <laughs> I just so. want to, just whatever country they're in to just put up pictures of them and like say what they were found guilty of. So right? like everyone knows. Yeah. You have to do a lot to do war crimes, you know? Exactly. These are crimes against humanity sorts of things. Like, this is rape, this is mass murder, genocides. Recruitment of child soldiers, like... Exactly. This isn't, you know, I killed someone in self-defense. That's not what this is. Oh, my God. Exactly. It's inconscionable. Mm -hmm. Like, to not want people who have done these things to have any accountability for what they've done. Yeah, exactly. So while there's, I think, a great concept behind the concept of a war crime, which, you know, 100 years ago, no term didn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, There's clearly such a limited capacity to address those war crimes. If, for example, the United States and Israel say that they cannot have, you know, uh, had any of their military commit war crimes, like, it's just nonsense. So yeah, it's, it's I think, really interesting to think about this in the, the concept of the Hunger Games, because they make it sound like there have been hundreds of war crime trials here, mm-hmm. which reminds me more of the kind of nationalist regime change war crime trials that often can exist as a way of persecuting the people who are per- previously in power. Because certainly everyone in the capital has some measure of accountability and responsibility for the Hunger Games. Yeah. For them to try and execute hundreds of people shows that this is uh, pretty widely targeted, not just looking at the leaders, but looking at a great deal of people. 
and just the fact that we know coin would use this for political gain that the ability to show that these trials are going on can help to create further fervor further support further you know engagement with this new government that's being established because it's showing a sense of justice for many people and i think that coin would know all of that and utilize all of that but like the whole thing was we don't want to kill everybody who has capital citizenship that's why we're gonna hold these hunger games so that's why i thought it was more nuremberg trials situation Mm -hmm. but but the nuremberg trials tried 21 people yeah, not, not, not enough exactly. by any stretch of the imagination. But even so, you know, there seems to be a higher scale here that raises questions for me. That's all. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I, I was wondering about that whole process, too. And, like, if people have already been executed or are just awaiting execution, because you, I was like, well, wouldn't Snow be the first one that they would kill, yeah. you know, symbolically or whatever, but are others on, quote-unquote, death row or whatever, but it's it's only probably been, like, a month. Yeah. And so they're gonna, going through these very quickly. Also which true. Which is also questionable in yeah, terms of Yeah, hundreds of trials in a month. And, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's there's questions to be had. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, Definitely. yeah, I, I think that in some war crime trials, I think are probably a good thing for humanity mm-hmm. to actually prosecute and hold accountable those who commit atrocities. But they also can be weaponized and have limitations that I think, as as I tend to do, everything's more complicated and nuanced mm-hmm. and awful. <laughs> All the grains of salt. Exactly. You love salt. I do love salt. Well, what about you? What touch points did you have? So what I was thinking about is when Katniss was thinking about why was Prim even allowed onto the battlefield since mm. she was like 13. And that was just reminding me of how last year in July, four teenage medics were killed by the military junta in Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And I know at least one other was earlier than that because my friend in Myanmar told me about what happened. Mm. And yeah, just really thinking about as tragic as this situation is with Prim, like this actually does happen to real people in our world uh, because of tyranny because of uh, long histories of European or American imperialism that has destabilized societies even in the aftermath of them leaving and mm. there was an article I was I was reading about it and one of the mothers of one of the teenage people who was helping treat people uh, as a medic in Myanmar had this quote that said I'm heartbroken, I'm so numb, and I feel like I have nothing inside. She wanted to volunteer, even though she was so young. She always said that she wanted to have a role she could play. Mm. And that just felt so prim. Yeah. And, you know, a, a little little insight maybe into some of what Prim's mom was feeling, too. Mm. That you have this kid who has such a loving, giving heart. 
and wants to help in any way they possibly can, even if it's dangerous. And they they die for it. Yeah. And it's, uh, again, we've mentioned before, but uh, the three-finger salute is something that has been being used in Myanmar as people continue to resist the military coup. Yeah, they, they are fighting off a military dictatorship to try to build something different, better, something that doesn't use the constitution that that they didn't exactly choose, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, just the courage that some people have and even children are, are giving their lives for these things is really harrowing, but also inspiring. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very good words for it. Yeah, I can't imagine what it would be like to not only participate in that, but to have your child or your sibling or someone you care about that deeply die from their participation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because then it, it, you probably are proud of them in a way, but you also must be so distraught because they tried to fight against something that's so much bigger than them and they were a casualty from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, yeah, the reason that they're fighting against them is because the government or the people in power are the people who would just kill children yeah. who are trying to help, yeah. you know? Yeah, that, that's the government you want to fight against. Absolutely. The other one that I was thinking about is the whole situation with, okay, let's take a vote on having another Hunger Games because... There are people from the districts who are not satisfied with just executing Snow and other of his accomplices and just the people in the top mm-hmm. power roles in the capital. And just really how unimaginative Coin and her colleagues are. <laughs> so true. Like, that... Okay, well, they want to kill everybody in the capital, but that wouldn't be good for the numbers. We can't figure out what to do. Should we kill everyone? Should we not? Should we just let these people go? So let's just do another Hunger Games. Let's do exactly what they did. <laughs> right? And just... It's very much a I am rubber, you are glue situation. <laughs> yeah, if not rubber and glue if it was bombs and (laughs) machine guns uh so yeah i think that the fact that they aren't i mean obviously we weren't in those conversations but there is no even attempt at any reconciliation or hope that okay, maybe things will change as we have more relationships with each other, as the whole structure of government changes and more equal access to everything is is actually implemented, you know. As people are still grieving, this may feel even more pronounced that Mm. this is what they want. But, like, in five years... Will they not still be grieving? They'll probably still be grieving, but they might be in a different place, you know? And so. And hopefully their quality of life will have improved to an extent that they don't still feel 
the sting of the oppression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the most famous examples of an alternative way of doing things is in South Africa Mm. in the aftermath of apartheid. Yes. Uh, or the official end of apartheid, obviously not everything changed, you know, but the government passed legislation mandating the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Mm -hmm. which over three years investigated human rights violations and, you know, had different parts doing different things to work with both the victims of violence, the perpetrators of violence, and uh, other aspects of society and, and things like that. And so, you know, that's very famous because of Nelson Mandela, because of Desmond Tutu. But another example, which I think is really interesting, is in Sierra Leone. Mm. They had a very bloody 11-year civil war that ended in the early 2000s. And in the aftermath of that, some people went to a special criminal court for the most severe war crimes, like what we were talking about before, some participated in something in a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, similar to what was done in South Africa, and others participated in a community-based practice called Fambul Tok, which means in Creole, uh, which the majority of Sierra Leone speaks, it means family talk. Mm. It's, it's a truth-telling tradition where local communities host a bonfire in the evening and both victims and perpetrators have an opportunity to come forward to tell their stories, apologize, and ask for or offer forgiveness. Mm. The communities then sing and dance in celebration of the open acknowledgement of and like resolution of what happened in the war and then the next day the communities would hold cleansing ceremonies and so it was just like such a different way of going about reconciliation and, and restorative justice it's not that they didn't have some of the criminal courts and proceedings and investigations and things like that but they also had some local practices for a country that was in civil war, where you have these different sides fighting each other, killing each other, and these communities being ripped apart. And the fact that, you know, n- nothing even along these lines of how could we have any sort of restorative justice practices in in Panem in the aftermath, yeah, just shows that it's all punitive mm-hmm. uh, and isn't really addressing the emotional needs of people in the aftermath of violence. Yeah, I think that that's so strong, too, because it's not just procedurally prosecuting and putting on record what happened, but it's building community out of it mm-hmm. um, and, and it's ritualizing it, which is fascinating and amazing. Um, that's really interesting. I'd never heard of that. Yeah, I remembered actually years ago uh, hearing, yeah, some really moving accounts uh, on, I think it was NPR I was listening to, uh, from some people who participated in it. And so I was like, ah, when we got to this, I was like, ah, I gotta look that up Mm -hmm. or like remind myself what was involved in this practice. But yeah, I mean, 
It was for a very different purpose, but in the process of getting reparations for Japanese Americans for the mass incarceration of them during World War II, the leaders of the movement set up these opportunities for people to publicly give their stories, Mm. give their accounts of things that happened to their families. And, you know, that was a really big deal, especially for a community that had such a hard time expressing what happened, uh, even sometimes to their children or their other family members. But yeah, there is something to voicing what has happened and other people having to hear it. Um, But I love that in this fumble talk practice that it's both. It is the perpetrators also coming forward and confessing and asking for forgiveness, Mm -hmm. uh, which, yeah, I mean, trying to imagine something like that happening in Panem, you know, some people that we know, Cressida even, like, these are the privileges I got off of your labor and your enslavement and your suffering. I worked on the Victory Tour this year. I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah, I helped to film the Hunger Games, I or mm-hmm. whatever else was going on, yeah, yeah, yeah. like and apologizing and asking for forgiveness, mm-hmm. uh, and if people could also forgive, I would like to think that hopefully a lot of people could. I think that that's what Katniss experienced. Mm-hmm. That at first it was Cato's my enemy in the Hunger Games. And then in the end, it was Cato is a tortured boy who I'm going to put out of his misery. And I don't hate him the way that I thought I did before seeing more of his humanity, you know? And if these victors and victors' families, if they could forgive each other for what their children has done to each other, then maybe that could be extended out even if it would be more difficult to uh the capital as well yeah yeah absolutely but again imagination is not uh fostered in district 13 (laughs) but what do we go into our last segment which is wonderments what are you wondering about so at one point in the chapter the prep team explains how All the other stylists and prep teams from the Hunger Games have been killed. Mm -hmm. And Katniss does spend a time kind of wondering whether it was the capital or the rebels. Because (laughs) she's like, I I don't know if it really matters. And I'm like, I think it matters. I totally think it matters. (laughs) Like, I understand why she feels like it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, I need to know. Exactly. (laughs) Because I could imagine the capital doing it because... These are people who are tied to the tributes who, in large numbers, were a part of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. And so just having a history as a support for those tributes seemed like it was villainized in the capital for mm-hmm. anyone who, who did anything like that, even if it was part of their job or part of you know what the capital celebrated during the games. Mm-hmm. For District 13 and the rebels... You know, obviously they are examples of people who were a part of the games Mm -hmm. and who helped to 
dress the the lambs for slaughter. I can imagine that they perhaps could have been the kind of people who were targeted by these war crimes corpse if they got to that point. And seeing them as very public examples of not only the games as kind of the pinnacle of district oppression, but also an example of the excesses of the capital, like the way Tigris was, of these are people who often have their own very intense styles and have done body modifications and all these other kinds of things. And, and even seeing how Katniss's prep team was treated and uh, the reactions to them in District 13, they mm-hmm. could see how useful they could be as symbols of the capital and how easily they can be terrorized. Yeah, I I can really see the districts participating in that. Uh, And of course, I could see the capital doing it because the capital's awful. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that that was my question is really how how that went down because in either direction, it would illustrate interesting and awful things about uh, both communities. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that... Plutarch and Hamish had to work hard to keep Effie alive. The fact that she was imprisoned after the 75th Games helps, uh, I think one of her prep team said. That means that District 13 wanted to kill Effie, and it's just like execution would be the sentencing for an escort or a stylist? Like, how is execution the sentencing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> like, I think I understand execution for snow, even if I'm not for it, but like, for uh, just an escort? Like, the thing is, I think District 13's perspective is good in terms of how we should have that for ourselves like not try to just shrug off our complicity in unequal systems that we perpetuate Mm -hmm. and benefit from but we also shouldn't be killed for it yeah so it's just like it's an extreme the complicity is there and should be acknowledged but, and there should be some accountability for that, whether that's emotional, psychological accountability, like confessing and asking for forgiveness, or whether that's like legal accountability. But yeah, execution is just so extreme. I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What about you? What are you wondering about? Yeah, so I was wondering about when Coyne mentioned that her colleagues and her couldn't come to consensus about what to do, who are her colleagues? Mm -hmm. I imagine Plutarch, but Hamish clearly wasn't in those conversations. Mm -hmm. And so that is making me think that he was kicked out of command, Mm -hmm. maybe for opposing Peter Vincent into the battlefield. I'm not sure. Maybe Uh, because he's drunk all the time now. Maybe because of that, or maybe just because... They felt like he was helpful in District 13 for what he had to offer, but they don't feel like they need his input anymore. I don't really know, but I'm just wondering, like, are the people in power literally only Plutarch and District 13 people? Mm. 
her and her colleagues making all these decisions, like people making decisions for the whole of Panem who have not effectively been living in Panem for the past 75 years. Like, <laughs> I mean, I can imagine Paler being in, in those kinds of conversations. Yeah, and But it, I would be very surprised if it wasn't overwhelmingly skewed District 13. Yeah, or, or maybe some people that... Plutarch had that were still in the capital that were rebels but yeah I just I wonder I want to know who these colleagues are absolutely coin it's also funny that she uses the word colleagues since she clearly knows that she's in charge Mm -hmm. (laughs) again I think trying to disperse the accountability and responsibility but yeah Also, the the other thing that I was wondering is when Katniss sees amusement in Snow's eyes mm-hmm. before she kills Coin, she interpreted it as he was still saying, my dear Miss Everdeen, I thought we had agreed not to lie to each other. But yeah, I'm just kind of wondering if his amusement was being happy at the news that there would be another Hunger Games. Mm. He's amused because Katniss, he thinks, Katniss finally understands why he had them all these years. Hmm. And... Oh, that's interesting. If it, like, further validates his understanding of himself and his decisions, like, he is not a monster. He did what any reasonable person would do if they understood the situation. And so he's just amused that, like, ah... Katniss and Coin are coming around to be just like me because this is the only right way to be, you know? Yes, you're so right. Yeah, absolutely. But, like, you know, I don't know. He's also just a jerk, so maybe he's like, ah, oh, I'm gonna die here, but I'm gonna act like I'm not scared. I'm just amused at the situation. Totally. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but uh, the amusement w- was was interesting there yeah that was making me wonder Mm. well this has obviously been a long episode so why don't we go into our final segment which is our intentions what are you taking away from this conversation or the chapter that you want to apply to your own life yeah i think that i need to to spend more time and really sit with ideas of accountability Mm. because as we've been talking about here there are typically two extremes that our society falls into. Either no accountability for the awful decisions that people make that hurt other people, or consequences that are extreme and violent in and of themselves. Mass incarceration in the United States being a clear example of that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that I have been very good at criticizing both of those things, Um, Mm -hmm. and building critiques of those things. But I have not been able to articulate, even to myself, a alternative or an understanding of what it means to find justice Mm. um, in a way that is compassionate to all involved. Partially because it's just so far away from the way our society is operated. But I think it's just something that I would like to sit with more because especially, you know, I'm teaching a couple classes with a more global focus this semester. And so I'm I'm thinking about that a lot and these ideas of war crimes and of 
global accountability for all the oppressive systems we live within. It's just uh, something I think I need to spend more time on. Mm. It's difficult. It's a very complex problem. Yeah. Um, that's not a one-size-fits-all situation. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting model when we look at church history that I don't know is actually practiced very much, at least in Christian churches in the United States anymore. But, like, going way back, you know, there was a practice of excommunication. Mm. And that's... But it that only works when you have a strong community. Yeah. Uh, because when you have a strong community and a strong community bond, it, you doing something that causes you to be excommunicated and to be told that, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this community anymore because of the damage that you're doing, that's a big deal because you're losing your relationships and your community support. But it's not killing you. It's not imprisoning you. It's just saying, I'm sorry, you can't be a part of this anymore. That's fascinating. I think the a modern example of that that I have heard, funnily enough, is in the punk scene, Hmm. where people who, for example, are accused of sexually assaulting someone Mm -hmm. can just be excommunicated basically taken out of the scene people do not communicate with that person anymore Mm. but they also don't necessarily look for a legal justice because they're punks you know Mm -hmm. a critique of the system itself is part of that ideology for many so um you know i don't know how widespread that is but i definitely heard some stories about that being the case in in some of those communities Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and obviously you could have the criticism that well then you're just sending that person off to do the same thing somewhere else right Uh, when it comes to something like sexual assault i think something more drastic needs to be done Mm -hmm. but um i mean not drastic but more uh with the safety of women or children or, you know, whoever is being assaulted in these situations, like, their safety needs to be kept in mind. But, yeah, I mean, it gets more complicated when you talk about serial killers or Mm -hmm. uh, someone who does serial violent crimes or, you know, something. It gets complicated. Yeah. There's also a really interesting... Ugh, no, no, it's just like, oh, ideal time. Um, There's a really interesting model of a prison that I believe is on a small island off of Sweden, I want to say. It's one of the Nordic countries for sure. I think it's Sweden that had a prison there. So they're imprisoned in terms of they're on this island. So you can't necessarily just swim to shore and escape. But because of that set up they didn't have to be in cells they had Mm -hmm. specific jobs that they had to do taking care of animals and food and stuff like that so it wasn't prison like we generally think of it but it also wasn't full freedom Mm -hmm. like we generally think of it it was really interesting study and in terms of recidivism and and all sorts of stuff It, it was fascinating yeah yeah that's that's very interesting What about you? What's your intention? I think my intention is thinking about that practice of fumble talk more. The piece about asking for forgiveness, that's not really something that I do much because, I don't know, it just feels weird. It feels, like, intense and, like, 
uncomfortable yeah. because it's not commonly done in our society. You might apologize for something, but you don't ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, but asking for forgiveness shows that you're taking it a little more seriously mm. um, and maybe is gi- is giving the choice to say yes or no. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, um, I just would like to think about it more. Totally. Um, because I think that there is something really powerful in forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But as a culture, we've gotten out of the habit of even using the word. Yeah. I forgive you for that. <sighs> for the whole culture? For the culture, yeah. Uh, I didn't realize I apologized for that, but cool. See, I'm helping you. You didn't even have to ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I think we found the solution. <laughs> okay, well, I think that is finally going to wrap up this conversation. I hope you enjoyed this very long episode. What's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to have our final chapter episode. We'll have one more after that for a conclusion of the entire book and read through. But for the chapters, we are going to finish the last chapter and including the, the very short epilogue. Thank you all so much for listening to this very long episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. You'll want to join us there because on March 25th at 12.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, we are having our Zoom meeting to conclude and just have a great Q&A and time to just enjoy and talk about and reflect on our time with these books going to be great the other ones have been really wonderful and really insightful it's open to patrons at any level so we urge you if you've been thinking about joining us on patreon now's the time and we also have our quiz on mockingjay trivia coming out at the end of this book too and our watch through of mockingjay part two so all of that is going to be coming out in the next few weeks So it is a great time to join if you are a Hunger Games fan. Or if you're not, just generally. Yeah, just if you want to support us for uh, the labor that we put into this podcast. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek Geek out. out!